This week on Trailblazers, we caught up with Josh Giesbrecht. Right now, he's the Cannabis Project Coordinator for Red River College, but he got started doing consultations for the Southern Chiefs Organization and National Access Cannabis. He was the person who got the ball rolling and started getting Northern and Indigenous communities involved in the legal cannabis industry. We talked about the Indigenous connection to cannabis, the new cannabis courses at Red River College, and how legalization fits into reconciliation. Thanks so much to Josh for coming on the show, and this is Trailblazers. How did you get involved with cannabis? Just yeah. itself, yeah. Yeah, for sure. Very serendipitous story. It uh, wasn't something I planned for. I was very much a occasional user. Um, if you go back, you know, to prior to February 2017, uh, it wasn't something I was against, of course, very, very open to it. And I was happy the legalization was happening, but it was so, I was a very average Joe, you know, uh, it didn't, you know, I didn't think it would affect my life too much, but basically what happened was, is, uh, so <clears throat> there's a little bit more of my history, uh, prior to, uh, November of 2017, I was working for the provincial government at the time, uh, working for Minister Eileen Clark, who's Minister of Indigenous Relations, uh, and I did that for six months. It was uh, it was an enjoyable experience, but you go prior to that, I was consulting and uh, I was doing it for First Nation communities, my home community of Rosa River, uh, the Tribal Council, Dakota River Tribal Council, and uh, and also our Treaty Land Entitlement Land Trust. And so, you know, I mostly consulted on policy and, and uh, political issues. Um, but a lot of chiefs, uh, one in particular, uh, Chief Dennis Meaches, were very interested, and he's from Long Plain, um, were very interested when they had heard that the Trudeau government was actually going to do this uh, of, of, to get involved in legalization. Um, so they, they brought it up with me just, you know, on occasion. And I knew nothing, uh, and I made that very clear to them. I don't know much about this, but I, I told them, I said, I'll keep my eyes open, my ear to the ground. And so in February 2017, I literally was walking down to Fools and Horses, uh, my favorite coffee shop, and uh, I saw this big sign that said National Access Cannabis on it. And I thought, oh, that's interesting. Uh, walked in the door, explained who I was, what I did. And uh, I met the store manager, and I also met uh, one of their lead consultants for designing the stores. Well, I shouldn't say stores. They were, they were clinics. Yeah. And, uh, yeah, I just told them who I was and what I was doing, and they were very interested right away. Um, and they said, you know, it's so funny. This is actually our soft opening. This is the first day we've been open. I said, are you kidding me? And, then, yeah. and so they said, uh, look, our, our official, you know, big grand opening is going to be happening on Friday. Uh, our president will be in town for that. They said, if you want, you can talk to him and kind of see where this goes. And I said, yeah, for sure. So I came back two days later. Um, the president of the company at the time, his name is Derek Odgen. He has a very interesting background. And it was really his background that got me to take this very seriously. Um, he actually used to be the top drug enforcement officer, you know, for the country. Yeah. And, uh, you know, and now that I'm in industry, you see a lot of RCMP involved at different varying levels but yeah. someone of his caliber that made it that high up and also someone that would have done a lot of convictions uh on cannabis uh just seeing him in this i was like what are you doing here yeah. <laughs> you know and, yeah. and uh, he told his personal story he said look like i you know have some health issues i don't want to get into but he says i take cannabis oil on a daily basis now he says i'm, I'm a believer on a personal level uh he says that was a year ago and he said uh Obviously, I also see the business opportunity, and uh, it was something that just made sense. And so we hit it off. Uh, we actually still talk. 
Um, I was just texting with him today because Long Plains, uh, Portage La Prairie, Urban Reserve location opened up. And I said, nah, like it's hard to believe that the drive we took out there, out there uh, a little over a year ago has come to actual fruition. Yeah. Yeah. And so, yeah, that's exactly what we did. It's a good lead-in, actually. We drove out uh, to Long Plain First Nation, uh, met with uh, the CEO of their Economic Development Corporation, a gentleman by the name of Tim Daniels. And I remember one of the first things that actually got said was, uh, we sit down with, with Tim, and uh, Derek Ogden says, so, like, what do you know about cannabis, you know, before we even get into, like, kind of why we're there? And uh, Tim says, well, I mean, I used to consume it. (laughs) (laughs) And, you know, we had a good laugh and and it just went on from there. And then really on that drive back uh, from Long Plain, Derek said, look, like I see the opportunity here. Um, Let's gather whatever communities, you know, you know, in a month's time and let's actually have a a meeting with them and just to see what they think if this interests them. And so we did. And you got to remember at the time, like we didn't know the fact that the provinces would basically have the say in how they rolled out uh, legalization. We didn't know, well, and it's because we didn't know that, we didn't know if it'd even be privatized. You know, we, we, there was a lot of unknowns, yeah. you know. So we were just, you know, kind of pitching it and seeing where it went from there. So, uh, yeah, we had a meeting. I think it would have been in end of March of that year or April. Uh, and I invited a few chiefs, uh, one of them, of course, being Chief Dennis Meaches, who I was, you know, close with at the time and still am. Uh, but one of the chiefs that actually showed up that became very instrumental in all of this was someone I didn't actually 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 invite, uh, but he just noticed all these chiefs going somewhere, yeah. <laughs> uh, leaving this conference. He said, "Hey, where are you guys going?" You know, and they said, "Oh, we're going to talk about weed yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and you know, eat some Indian tacos." And he's like, "Do you mind if I join?" And they said, "Yeah, sure." So this gentleman, of course, was Chief Christian St. Clair from yeah. Opascot Cree Nation. And uh, he had been doing his homework, you know. He had just gotten in as chief. And uh, his community was uh, coming from, you know, to be just to be blunt, a very bad place. They weren't doing very well, and that's yeah. why he ran. And he knew that uh, not only did they need to get their house in order, they needed to make some significant investments right. in different businesses. And this was one of them that was really interested him. So he had done his homework. He, he definitely knew more than your average person, me included. And so as the meeting's going, it's becoming very self-evident that himself and Chief Meaches are definitely the ones that are most, you know, in tuned with maybe let's do this. And so as the meeting wraps up, uh, you know, Chief Christian St. Clair asks Derek, "Uh, do you know a gentleman by the name of Chuck Rafici? And Derek kind of laughs like, oh, yeah, I yeah, I do know him. And then he says, oh, how so? He's like, well, actually, he's the chair of our board and kind of blew, you know, Chief St. Clair out of, um, you know, the fact that someone that he had seen was very pivotal to legalization even happening. Um, Chuck Rafici is, he was one of the founders of Tweed, and uh, he's kind of known as the, the godfather of uh, legal cannabis in yeah. Canada. And so they hit it off, and literally 45 days after the fact, uh, Opasco Cree Nation was the largest shareholder of uh, National Access Cannabis. Wow, yeah. So it just shows you how fast things move. And, and my part in that whole thing was very small. You know, like I, it was just the introductions. But it got the wheels turning. And yeah. uh, But I didn't know at the time even then that I was really, you know, uh, all in on this. Yeah. Which is why I ended up with the French government. So, of course, during that time I stepped away from it. Yeah. But when I got out of it and I did a, you know, we call it a second tour of duty. Um, did it out in BC with the same company. Uh, it was there really where the wheels started turning. And I was like, wow, this is, and I didn't, I didn't, still didn't grasp the scope, 
but I grasp that yes, retail's good, and obviously I'm very excited that we're doing it. Um, but there's much more to this industry than just that. Yeah. So mm-hmm. when you went to BC, you were helping other communities kind of get their roots with cannabis, or yeah. yeah. So um, basically, we it was interesting because by that point, uh, we I mean we didn't know if uh, we had won the RFP here in Manitoba, right. but we know we, were, we knew we were competitive. Uh, but you know, NAC was spanning out all over the country, and it wasn't just a first nation strategy; it was strategy on multiple levels to get retail locations up and going. And so, you know, when you go to BC, actually, interesting enough, was one of the last, you know, provinces to roll out their plan. So when we went out there, we didn't know what that plan would be, um, but we knew that it was worth getting leads. So I literally, it was like a week after I think I had moved on from the province, I called uh, Derek and said, hey, look, like, I'm now doing consultant work again. I'm actually doing work with uh, with uh, Chief Meech's son, who's the Grand Chief of the Southern Chiefs. He's like, oh, really? That's great. And I said, yeah. I said, I know that things here in Manitoba are, you know, advanced. But I said, I have a lot of contacts in BC. Um, you know, if you guys want to make a move, just let me know. And he says, absolutely. He says, it's a very good time, actually. So came and did that, did that trip. It was, a, I think it was a two-week or a week-long trip. I can't really remember. But it was me, him, and uh, Chief Christian St. Clair. And at that point, uh, the company had gone public. Uh, Chief Christian St. Clair was on the board of directors. Um, first time, to my knowledge, that that's happened, where a sitting chief is, you know, sitting on a board of a publicly traded company on the TSX. And yeah, we toured around, we visited a bunch of communities. And uh, really, it was when I got home, I was like, okay, I gotta, we have to get involved in cultivation. And, uh, you know, that wasn't what National Access Cannabis was, was going for. They were going for the clinical model, the retail model. Um, definitely not criticizing that. That's, it's, it's good. Uh, but that's really what kind of led me thinking about that. But then, you know, there was, I guess, an uh, opportunity that just came up. Uh, Rebecca Chartrand was someone I knew uh, just through friends and, you know, uh, politic, uh, political experiences. And uh, she was mentioning some of the stuff she was up to at the college. And I'd, I'd kept an eye on it, too, and I was impressed. I mean, she wrote, like, five new programs. I mean, really turned around that, that department. And uh, she said, would you be interested in helping me doing some, you know, student recruitment over the summer? And that was with the Indigenous School of Education, yeah. Yeah, Yeah. so I came on and I did that uh, starting in April. Um, So it was just another contract at the time. And that's really where, um, I mean, it's so funny how that progressed because, you know, cannabis was not on the radar at that point, put it to you that way. And she had mentioned it a couple times. That was something that might might interest her. uh, but it really wasn't till hmm, probably, I don't know, it would have been, I would guess, June, where we really started to think about it seriously because legalization was coming very close. And as far back as actually February, um, both National Access Cannabis and Opasco Cree Nation actually sent uh, official letters to Rebecca saying, hey, look, like we're going to need to build a workforce. Um, this is something the college should consider doing. Yeah. And so it wasn't like it fell on deaf ears, but um, I think people just wanted to see how the regulations shaked out, right? And uh, in June, we kind of had a much better idea. So Rebecca asked me, said, look, like, I know this is, you're doing the recruitment thing, it's going well, but I want you to look into this, mm-hmm. you know? Uh, two things she requested. She said, uh, let's look at possibly a trip down to the U.S. to see how they're doing it. Um, at the time she was thinking Colorado 
And she says, let's also set up a consultation meeting uh, with not only indigenous communities, but the industry uh, players out there in Manitoba, also medical professionals, you know, so she had kind of the, the vision of, you know, this is maybe how we could see if this is something we should be doing. Yeah. And so uh, based on those letters that came in back in February. And so then, yeah, I looked into it and it became very self-evident to me that as good as it would be to go to Colorado, which was one of the first movers on in the U.S. on this, uh, I mean, it wasn't a comparable case study, right? Mm-hmm. Like their populations, you know, very, very small. Um, the only comparable case study I could find that was uh, that really could show us what Canada's legalization might look like was California because their population's actually bigger than ours, ironically, <laughs> for one state, but, yeah. you know, roughly the same. And uh, I started doing research, and then one of the things I came across was a couple things, actually. One was Oaksterdam uh, Cannabis College. They were, you know, one of the longer-running ones that existed down there. Uh, and then there was also a conference happening in San Jose uh, right around when they were offering a two-day training. Uh, so it was with the uh, National Industry or no, National Cannabis Industry Association, which is the largest lobbying group in the U.S. Uh, on cannabis. And so I was like, okay, well, this could kind of work out. We could go for a week, go to do the two-day training, uh, you know, tour a couple of the you know, retail locations, and then go to this conference, um, which was a, both an expo and a business uh, networking summit. And so we did it. And it's really, and then we had also, it, it just kind of all found the place because then, um, so we had left on, I think it was like July 24th or something like that. And we got back uh, right before the 31st. Yeah. And July 31st was when we did the, the consultation meeting. So it all kind of shook out. And so she approved it. Uh, we went and did it. And really, that's where everything changed. Mm-hmm. Because for both of us, we, you know, you can't, you know, it's like a lot of things in life. Until you actually go and see it, like physically, and actually are in it, experiencing it, it's really hard to fully grasp it, mm-hmm. right? And so we got there when California was a year into this legalization world. And there was just so many things we discovered. But I, I always say, at least for me personally, the biggest thing I discovered on that trip was that no one had broken the code on anything. Um, and, you know, people had always told me, some of my friends, business colleagues, uh, what have you, confidants who had gone down there, um, oh, they're so much further ahead than us, Right. And usually they were talking about product design, you know, whether it was edibles, you know, the quality of, of cannabis itself. And there's no doubt about it. Yeah, they, they are ahead of us. But it's not like light years, you know. And one case in point is, you know, as good as the Oaksterdam experience was, just by the name, I mean, not exactly the most professional thing in the world. Yeah. <laughs> you know, and... You know, you can't really blame them. It's hard for them to get content, uh, credentialed content experts because, uh, you know, as much as it is legal on a state level, it is still very much illegal on a federal level. So how many, for example, how many doctors are going to be willing to go to a college like that that's not credentialed and uh, talk about cannabis? Not many, right? And we didn't see any for actually for that matter. There was a lawyer that was at that, that was credentialed, but there was no medical doctors. So they were talking about, uh, you know, the medical benefits of cannabis with no medical background, right? So it's, uh, yeah, like the, there was the lack of professionalism uh, and there was also just a lack of maturity in the business itself. So we toured about, I want to say, nine or 12 different retail locations, uh, all from different companies. Uh, but I, I honestly can't say that any of them were great. 
Um, there were some that were really bad. Yeah. You know, it was obvious they were being run by people that didn't know what they were doing. Yeah. Um, there were some that were uh, extremely pretentious, you know, just to put it lightly. Um, they were, it's like they thought they were selling you a Rolex. Yeah. You know, and, you know, as much as I think there needs to be professionalism, I mean, let's be honest, at the end of the day, this is cannabis. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Uh, so, the, and there were some that were okay. You know, like there, there were some that I would say were average, but there were none that were great experiences. Yeah. And, um, so there's a lack of maturity in the in in the industry. So when you know we landed, and then I st- we started doing an environmental scan. Okay, like what is out there actually on education? Not much. You know, there's n- there was nothing in Manitoba. There was nothing in Saskatchewan. There's a little bit in Alberta, but not not that much. Yeah. And then you go to BC and Ontario, which are really the only provinces that have something. Um, there's a couple things. One is they usually are, are their, their courses are very specific. So a good example is Niagara College, very specific to horticultural. And you need to have like a science degree. Like there's so many things you need to even be able to apply. Mm-hmm. And, you know, Rebecca is really the one who um, saw it for what it was, that there's no one out there just doing a base level of understanding of this, you know, and that it's accessible to anyone. And, the pr- and, and we're a price point that anyone can really afford it. Mm-hmm. And so that's why we went in that direction of a Cannabis 101. Nice. Yeah. So you took all of that information that you got from the conference and those meetings down in the States, and you kind of built on that to make the curriculum for the college. How did you kind of navigate that? Yeah. So uh, when we landed, you know, it was literally like landing, you know, the consultation meeting. Yeah. And so... You know, we get to that consultation meeting, and let's be honest, we didn't know who would actually show up. Like, of course, people tell you, oh, yeah, I'll be there, but you never right. really, really know, especially because we were, you know, going after uh, people that are very busy, you know, and have a lot on their plate, whether they're chiefs or CEOs of companies or doctors, right? So we didn't really know who would actually show up to this thing, um, but we had, I believe it was 26. Uh, people come nice, yeah. and it ranged everywhere from people like Dr. Shelley Turner, who's now the lead instructor for the course, yeah. uh, to the head of Manitoba Retail for National Access Cannabis, uh, to um, Karen DeBroni, who at the time was working for Bonafide, to One Leaf Cannabis, who sent uh, their VP of Compliance, Mick Supel, and you had a lot of buying from communities. And the, the, I would argue... Um, the two most important things that happened as far as individuals showing up was that President David Chartrand of the Manitoba Métis Federation came to this and Chief Dennis Meaches of Long Plain, who's also the spokesperson for Treaty 1 on Campion Barracks, was also there. Um, that's huge. Yeah. I mean, the chances of us getting those two individuals you know, in the same meeting room for more than three hours is nothing short of a miracle. Yeah. And they came and, you know, it was, there wasn't one part of the consultation that was missing. Right. And so the biggest message that came out of that day was that people wanted a course developed. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, that's when Rebecca thought, OK, well, let's do a base level course, something that's tangible, something that anyone can take. Um, and also something that uh, whether it's you want to get a job in the industry or you're just curious or you're even a skeptic, this course is perfectly made for that type of person. Yeah. Yeah. You guys are a few classes in. How is it going so far? It's going great. Yeah. Um, so we had set up a number uh, of 45 students 
for the first intake. We're now at 57. Yeah. Uh, so we, we made more room. But if you walk into that classroom, uh, there's we, we literally couldn't accept more people. Yeah. Um, and, you know, we developed the course after that meeting by setting up uh, a committee, a curriculum committee, and, uh, you know, getting content experts. So we have Dr. Shelley Turner was on the committee. Uh, her assistant, Dr. Faith Dealman, was also on the committee. Um, the LGCA was on the committee, which is huge because it means it automatically had credential, right? Because it's, it's, you know, recognized by this provincial government that it, this is credible. Um, we also had EMLCC. So the way the provinces set it up is that LGCA handles the actual inspections of the stores, making sure that people are following the rules, all the rest of that. And the MLCC handles the wholesale buying of the product. All right. So they uh, also participated. Um, Dr. Brent Guppy uh, participated as well. He came on later um, because I met him at the uh, Cannabis and Hemp Expo that Aurora held, I guess it was a month and a half ago or so. Yeah. And he just phenomenal on the genetic side of cannabinoid research, really ahead of his time. And uh, he does research actually at the Brody Center with the U of M on tumors in children. So, I mean, like, just someone that has a vast amount of credential to be, you know, speaking on this. And so he added a lot. Uh, we had, um, who else? Paul Martin, who is a nurse by practice, uh, longtime ACPMR holder. Um, participate as well. He's been absolutely phenomenal. I can't say enough good things. Alan Panetta, yeah. I mean, who really is, uh, well, he's a bunch of things, but really <laughs> is like the master networker. Yeah. Like, I can't count how many people he's connected me yeah. with. I mean, if it wasn't for him, I wouldn't have met Dr. Brent Guppy. I wouldn't have met Paul Martin. I mean, the list just goes yeah. on. And so it was, I mean, I, I always call him like he's kind of like the perfect advocate. Yeah. You know, um, and who's really ahead of his time yeah. on a lot of things. And I mean, I mean, of course, he does probably some of the best work on infused food that I've seen. Yeah. Um, but just his networking skills, second to none. Yeah, yeah. I agree. Yeah. Alan's so good. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, so I've heard a rumor that there will be an edibles course offered at PGI after they've legalized in 2019. Is that true? Uh, well, I can't speak too, too much to that. What I can say as far as rumors that are swirling that are true and we can completely confirm is that there will be a Bud Tenders course released in 2019. Um, actual date uh, is still evolving uh, and what it will actually be called is still evolving. But when I say Bud Tenders, so right now that's the common term is what's used for someone that's a retail experience. Um, it's what's used in California, Colorado, and a little bit up here as well. Yeah. Um, we feel that that name is not good, not because of the fact that there's butt in there, but because it, it causes confusion for people that aren't familiar with the industry. They, they think we're talking about hand trimmers. Um, I often get that. Also, oh, it's for cultivation. And then that's when we kind of thought, okay, we got to change the name yeah. because it's not clear to the general public of what they're taking. Like, I would, I would hate for someone to apply for a course to think they're going to learn how to cultivate and they get in and they find out oh, you actually learn how to sell this yeah. right so we're we're working on that right now of what the actual name will be um but it, it will be for retail experience because right now i mean all the companies in this province are struggling with filling up positions in their stores um we haven't even seen the second wave of licensing yet that is coming down i don't know when but soon 
Um, and uh, if they're struggling, it's, it's, it's institutions like this that have to step to the plate and yeah. offer the capacity building tools. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. So that's the only course that you guys have kind of working on for the future or any more? Um, well, that's, that's an immediate future. Yeah. I mean, we will release the Canvas 101 again as is, uh, eight weeks, 36 credit hours, you know, so on and so forth. We've had a push from a lot of the professional community. So, like, for example, like people like lawyers, politicians, bureaucrats, you know, uh, what have you, uh, business executives that, you know, are very interested in the course for very many different reasons. Uh, but, you know, frankly, for someone like them, uh, eight weeks, two nights a week is a big commitment, right. you know, especially yeah. if they have a family. So they've told us, like, hey, if, if it was a week, you know, long workshop, that's doable. Mm -hmm. So we're seriously looking at that as well. Uh, online, of course. Um, and uh, but yeah, that, that's kind of where we're at. I mean, obviously, and Rebecca's always been very open about this. Obviously, uh, the drive is to actually have a program built. Right. Um, and we're looking at the fall of 2019. Um, but, you know, a lot of that we just can't really commit yet because if you do a full-up program, it has to get a provincial approval, right? Mm -hmm. And that, that takes time. Mm -hmm. So it's more of a question of can we get the ducks in a row to do this yeah. in time? Yeah. yeah. So just kind of stepping back and looking at the broader context, uh, what is the Indigenous connection to cannabis? Yeah, so it's, um, I would say it's, it's several things. Um, one is, I mean, there's always been a history, long-time history of plant-based medicines in any Indigenous culture, not just here in Canada, um, but all over the world. So there's that automatic connection. Um, now, specific to Manitoba, Honestly, I can't speak too much on the history of it. Um, I mean, obviously, it's not a ancient plant to these lands. Um, but there is a lot of modern push for it. That's unique to Manitoba. Um, and, you know, I didn't realize it until I was literally in it, you know. But when you kind of poke up your head and look around what's going on in the rest of the country, um, it's a very different experience. So NBC is a good example of that. You don't really see too many First Nations uh, participating on it, and that's for several reasons. One is, you know, a lot of them are still feeling it out. Um, some are or want to be involved, but um, similar to Quebec and Ontario, a lot of the nations out there have decided to go down the sovereignty route, uh, which I'm sure you're familiar with what uh, former Grand Chief Derp Nivenak was talking about. And um, what that really means is that they have decided that uh, it is within their rights to establish whether it's cultivating cannabis or selling it or what have you it's within their rights to do that through their own governance systems and not through provincial regulations or federal regulations uh i'll, I'll say on a personal level um uh, not representing the college uh i agree with it in principle um but in in actual you know uh reality uh it's not something i endorse uh just because it it blocks you from exporting it, it blocks you from doing research and development. Uh, it blocks you from a lot of things. And uh, it's not saying that I don't commend them for what they're doing, uh, but what it is to say is that I am very happy and proud that in Manitoba we've gone the exact other way. We've gone down the legal way. And is it harder? Is it more frustrating? Absolutely. But it is the right decision for the long term. Yeah, for yeah. sure. So how does Indigenous participation in cannabis fit into the bigger picture of reconciliation? Yeah, that's, uh, that's a very good question. Um, you know, it, it, I would start with this, and I, I've said this several times to many different people. You know, there are very few things in life 
that you can you know make money on uh, and actually do very well and yet also deal with a lot of social issues um, and health issues that's extraordinarily rare um, and uh, to be honest I can't even think to me off the top of my head that would be comparable to that and cannabis is exactly that yeah uh, you know um, you can do very well with it right now, whether you're participating in the recreational side or medical side from a monetary sense. Um, but for me, uh, you know, it, it's always been about the products. The products, in my opinion, always have to come first. Um, and so in that sense, I mean, what other product can you effectively deal with an opiate crisis in your community? Uh, what other product can you effectively deal with meth addiction in your community? Not a lot of people know that, by the way. People always assume, oh, it's just an opioid, you know. But no, you can you can deal with meth addictions uh, through cannabis. Um, and uh, by no means I'm an authority on that. Uh, you know, I think if, if you want to do a podcast on that, talk to Dr. Shelley right? yeah, <laughs> Turner. Yeah. Phenomenal. Um, and, uh, you know, what other product can you, you know, have a good time, you know, uh, but still remember what you did that night right, yeah. and not wake up with a bunch of regret the next morning. Yeah. Uh, and those are all, you know, I don't care if you're, you know, uh, in, uh, in the North, in a very isolated community, or if you're in the South near city centers, these are all um, topics that can be addressed through cannabis. Yeah. And you know what? I always highlight this. It's not a silver bullet. Like there, yeah. there's nothing that's a catch all. Yeah. But it is definitely something that can go a long way with doing a lot of different things. Yeah. So there are a few communities that are um, dry communities from alcohol. Have mm-hmm. you experienced that with cannabis and how do you kind of navigate that? Yeah. Um, so, yeah, that's it's very interesting. Um, typically, uh, we're not always, obviously, but typically where you see dry communities exist uh, in amongst First Nations uh, are in isolated communities, usually, uh, and usually further north. Um, not all the, oh, not always. Um, and in the South, uh, it's actually Long Plain would be a good example of this. They're not a dry community, but they have very high standards for their elected officials and for, you know, people that work in their administration, um, that they have to do regular and random drug testing. Um, so right now, actually today on their list is still cannabis, um, unless you have a medical card, of course. Um, and so when it comes down to their staff, they generally don't do anything if it comes up. Um, with their elected officials, honestly, I don't know. Like, I've actually asked the council about that before. Like, what would happen if uh, it was found in somebody uh, in a random test and they didn't have a medical card? And they don't really know yet, right? Yeah. Because, and it's, you know, I think for some of these communities, it's a case of that their own bylaws have to catch up with what the actual law is in general. Uh, and some of them will decide it's time to update our laws, uh, which I'm sure probably where Long Plain will go. Uh, and some of them will decide, you know, it's not for us. Um, and, you know, as much as I am an advocate and a believer, you have to respect that. Yeah. Right. And so I guess that's probably the best way of putting it right now. Yeah. And uh, communities are feeling that out. I think I forget the exact name of it, but there was a Mohawk community. Uh, in Quebec that just recently voted on it and it, it went through. So yeah. typically communities where it, it is a law that, uh, you know, is prohibitive, uh, they typically do referendums. Yeah. Yeah. So just a matter of time, I guess. Or... It's, it's a matter of time. And, uh, you know, I'm proud to say that I think Manitoba will lead that. I yeah. mean, um, just this week uh, on Tuesday, 
of Pascar Cree Nation became the first legally recognized retail store. Yeah, that was my next question. Yeah. 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 And uh, today, another one, Long Plain First Nation. And uh, either on November 16th or 21st uh, will be when Long Plains uh, Urban Reserve location here in the city of Winnipeg will open up. And that's significant because that will be the first uh, legal cannabis retail location on sovereign lands in a city center, in a major city center. Yeah. Um, so, you know, and it's just so right because uh, think about where the first medical production facility opened up uh, in 2003 was in Flin Flong, Manitoba. Yeah. You know, we, we've had a lot of first in this industries and we already lead on hemp. So it, it makes a lot of sense why it would happen here first. Yeah. So Meta only has one uh, location in Winnipeg, correct? Uh, no. They no. Well, so the first one that opened up was um, uh, on Pemina. I think it was like 538 Pemina or something okay, like that. Yeah. Um, and so that's just outside of Osborne Village. Uh, and then so that was their first. And it oh, did open up on the 17th. Uh, I was there that day. Uh, it was absolutely insane, the line. Yeah. <laughs> and actually, it was pretty funny. So I drive up there. Um, their CEO, Mark Gallagher, who I know really well, was walking out. And it it was weird. It looked like he had seen a ghost. Oh. Like, I think he was just overwhelmed with how many people were there. And uh, <laughs> this is the only time I've ever come across this. I come up and say, how's it going, Mark? He's like, oh, really good. I said, yeah, I'm just coming here to check out the story. He's like, yeah. Better wait till tomorrow. Come back, yeah. And I'm like thinking, like, wow, this is the CEO of the company <laughs> telling a customer you should wait. Yeah. You know, it must be pretty crazy. Yeah. Um. Yeah. So that was their first store. They they have one on um, Portage, Portage yeah, down yeah. in St. James. Yeah. I don't know if it's actually open. I've just seen the sign on it. Yeah, I'm not sure. Um. And then uh, you know, Long Plains will be opening up soon. Yeah. And I think they have five or six locations throughout Winnipeg. Oh, that's awesome. In the first round. Yeah. Sweet. So what are your predictions for just the general market over the next few years? What could we expect? Yeah, yeah. I think, well, I mean, the first word that comes in mind is craziness. I mean, it's going to be crazy. Um, but yeah, overall specifically, what do I think? Well, I think for one, the shortages are going to last longer than we expect. And by shortages, um, I always have to explain that to people. I don't mean that there, of course, will be product available. Uh, that's not going to become the issue. Um, although medically, maybe not, right? Because uh, what we've seen is on the medical level, there pretty well actually isn't anything available, legally speaking, uh, unless you're growing it through your AC and PMR at home. Um, good example is Taylor Ray Cannabis. I mean, this is a company that has really set the tone, in my opinion, on medical cannabis. They're the largest uh, cannabis company in the world right now. Um, I think their evaluation is around $14 billion. Their claim to fame uh, has always been that they were the first company to get FDA approved to ship medical cannabis into the United States legally. So that's huge. And they're also, I think they did about two or three uh, cannabis strains. They got uh, approved to actually have recognized serial health in the Canada numbers so health insurance can cover those. Yeah. That's always been a big issue within the cannabis industry. So they've done all these phenomenal things on on the medical side uh yet two days after cannabis goes legal they run out of medical product and uh so you see that um i think the medical shortages are going to be prohibitive and i think you're going to see health canada have to rejig the regulations where they're going to require licensed producers to set aside a certain amount for the medical market because right now there's there's no requirement that they have to set aside x amount uh, for the medical side, they can, the patients, yeah. yeah, they can shift everything direct if they really felt like it, you know, wow. which is unfortunate. Yeah. Um, and so I think you're going to see massive shortages on the medical side, unfortunately. On the recreational side, yeah, you know what, you're going to be able to walk in your store and, and probably find something, uh, but it won't be consistent. 
You know, I always compare it to like, let's say there's a certain hot sauce you love. Um, imagine going to the grocery store one day and it's not there and you ask the store manager, hey, like, when do you expect to have this in? And they're, they say, honestly, I don't know. Yeah. That's what you find right now in retail locations. Yeah. That's what they'll tell you. Let's say there's a certain Broken Coast product you absolutely love. Um, they'll tell you, we don't know when we'll get it back in. Maybe a month, maybe a week. I don't know. And so those kind of shortages are going to take place for a while. And right now, most forecasts, uh, you know, whether they're from financial institutions, say it'll be about two years. Um, I think that's optimistic for a couple reasons. I think it's optimistic because we are literally having export markets open up, like different ones, almost every week. It's it's crazy. Like if this month is a good example. You know, we're not that far into November. We already have UK is approved let, uh, medical cannabis. Legalization has passed. Mm-hmm. Um, you have Mexico said yesterday that they just tabled recreational legalization in yeah. the Senate. Um, Michigan just passed recreational cannabis. Yeah. Utah passed medical. Yeah. Um, and, you know, who would ever think we live in a world where Trump is president, the Senate is still controlled by Republicans, and they're actually all openly talking about cannabis legalization. Yeah. Uh, Jeff Sessions gets fired uh, two days ago. Uh, Tilray stock went up by 30% after that happened. Really? So I think we're going to see U.S. legalization probably happen faster than we thought. Um, you know, a lot of people will say, oh, well, that will mean supply problem will get fixed. Um, in the medium term, absolutely. U.S. legalizing will help with that. In the short run, no. It, it will actually make the issues become more protracted um, because you have the world's largest economy going legal. I mean, it's, it's going to be craziness as far as demand goes and that's another thing every single forecast whether it's on demand supply size of the industry growth of the industry list goes on almost all the forecasts have been way off um and by way off usually they've underestimated yeah you know what's going to take place and you know what i'm not saying it's a criticism um you know they're stuck with the metrics they have right mm-hmm. um cibc is actually a good example of that they released a report on the forecast of the industry uh, back in May of this year, and uh, they admitted you know, right in the introduction of that report that, you know, we don't know how accurate these forecasts are because we're basing it, like every other group, on alcohol and tobacco. And the reality is with those products, there is no medical side to it. Um, and with this, there is. So that makes it very unpredictable yeah. as far as how it will roll out. Yeah. Um, and then there's the fact that edibles aren't even legal yet. I mean, you have... Um, inhalants just aren't popular anymore. Yeah. You know, and will there always be a market for inhalants? Absolutely. I'm not saying that. But over time, you're going to see inhalants become less and less the choice of method. Yeah. Um, and so, you know, once edibles go legal, which is probably about a year from now, uh, a lot of things are going to change very mm-hmm. fast. Awesome. Um, so that was all I had for questions. Mm. Is there anything else you wanted to add or? Um, you know, Canada's in an interesting position. Um, We're not going to lead on actual growing, and that always surprises people, right? Um, Because, I mean, if Germany ever goes fully legal, I mean, they're obviously going to become the biggest producer in in Europe pretty quickly. Lifco actually predicts that that will happen probably within two years. Um, And the German government has stated that probably by 2020, they're going to start allowing domestic producers to uh, start to happen. Um, And then if the U.S. goes legal sooner than we think, I mean, that's going to really shake up things. Uh, so Canada's really uniqueness and why we can lead in this isn't the you know scalability of production. It's in R&D and patentable IP. Uh, we arguably have the best regulation regime right now in the world. Uh, and I, that will only improve over time. And 
what makes that so special is that um, Dr. Brent Guppy uh, said it best, in my opinion. He says what makes research and development uh, so much more uh, interesting within pharmaceuticals and technology is that it's not linear, it's exponential. Um, and so what does he mean by that? Well, a good example is personalized computers. Uh, you go back into the 80s and 90s when they were really becoming a thing. Um, look at Microsoft. They were really the ones who did really well at software. They were really good at developing software. Still to this day, even though Apple's worth a trillion dollar company, Apple still, their software is not as good as Microsoft. It, it still isn't, which is, I mean, shocking. Mm -hmm. But then vice versa, who has better hardware? Apple, by, by light years over Microsoft. And it's going to be similar in cannabis. You're going to see certain companies uh, figure out, um, this is an example, synergistic effects between maybe a certain pharmaceutical and a cannabinoid, and they're going to run away with it. Mm -hmm. And no one's ever going to catch up with them. But the fact is there's so many unknowns about cannabis that, you know, no company's going to dominate it. But I, I predict that Canada overall will dominate it for sure. For sure. Yeah. Awesome. Thanks so much for coming on. No problem. Thanks for having me. Awesome. Thanks again to Josh for coming on the show. You can learn more about the Cannabis 101 course and all the other cannabis courses coming down the pipe on the Red River College website. Let us know what you thought of this episode on our social media at Trailblazers Pod. Thanks so much for listening and we'll see you next week.